Welcome to the Barnes and Thornburg Podcast Network. You're listening to Trial Ready, a podcast dedicated to learning about the work of trial lawyers and their insights into the legal issues of today. To learn more, visit us online at btlaw.com. Welcome back to Trial Ready, Barnes and Thornburg's podcast dedicated to learning about trial lawyers and the work that they do. It's been a while since I and my co-host Mina Sinfelt have been with you guys, and we apologize, but once again, work and life and being a busy trial lawyer got in the way of scheduling time for our podcast. But the wait was well worth it because today we are joined by John Kelly, one of our newest partners at Barnes and Thornburg. John and several members of his team joined the firm this past summer, and he currently chairs our healthcare department and healthcare industry practice. John focuses his practice on matters involving the False Claims Act, the Anti-Kickback and Stark Law, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, as well as other regulatory and compliance issues. Before we get all into John's business and hearing about the work he does and how he got to do this work, we have to go first to our preliminary questions. Mina? All right. Thank you, Michelle. And welcome, John, to our podcast. Um, As usual, we're going to take it easy on you in the beginning. So here are your softballs. So first, our listeners would like to know who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, so, yep, as you mentioned, John Kelly, uh, I, I started my career as a state prosecutor, then was a federal prosecutor, um, finished my time at DOJ as the assistant chief for healthcare fraud. And I've been in the private sector now for probably close to 15 years. Uh, and I represent uh, all different types of companies, providers, health systems, pharma, med device, hospitals. Uh, a variety of different types of providers in the healthcare space and executives as well in both criminal and civil healthcare fraud matters. Awesome. Okay. So now tell us a little bit about the man, not the lawyer, and tell us where did you grow up? So I grew up in Rochester, New York, which makes me a lifetime suffering, emotionally devastated Buffalo Bills fan. But although this could be the year, so I'm, I'm clinging to hope as a member of the uh, Bills Mafia. Yes, and, and my family, who are Steelers fans, would not forgive me if I didn't say how disappointed we are in you for being a Bills fan. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> okay, and as we do every time, I have to ask you, John Kelly, what is your number? Uh, it just generally my number, like my, like jersey number. <laughs> I love it. I think that's the first time we've ever got that, and I love that one. <laughs> well, what do you think that means, John? What is your number? What is your number? Oh, well, John, man. It's a, I don't know. It's a podcast uh, about trials I don't know. and trial what does it mean? work. All right. So, ah, yeah. my number. You um, number trials. Yeah. yeah. So I've probably had, I'm probably at 45 jury trials and probably another, I don't know, anywhere. It's over 100 between bench trials and jury trials. You know, as a state prosecutor, you were trying bench trials every day, so you didn't really keep track. And see, now we're both salivating because we miss trial so much and we're just waiting for our next trial to come up. And so this is the part that we love. I'm trying to get to 30, John. Damn, 45 is too, oh my goodness, that's so impressive. I am Yeah, well, you know, but you were doing it, you were doing it at the U.S. Attorney's Office. That's a different beast, right? I mean, as a state, when I started as a state prosecutor, you'd have 15 jury trials scheduled on a Friday. And you'd walk in and you'd have no idea which one was going to go. So you'd have five that you may have resolved ahead of time, five that you thought could go, and five were no uh, witness 
ever actually responded to a subpoena. And, you know, inevitably there were times one of those would go. And I mean, I can't tell you the number of times you're standing there picking a jury and you have no idea what the case is even about uh, as a state prosecutor. You were like just making it up as you go. And uh, but that's that really taught you how to be a trial lawyer. Right. Because you just learned that things were never going to be perfect. And you had to put people up on the witness stand and work your way through it. And police officers you hoped would show and and you figured out a way to do it. No, and so true, John, because, you know, working in D.C., you know, we do handle local crime um, because D.C. is not a traditional state. And so I did start out basically as a state prosecutor, even though I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office. But unfortunately for me, most of the jury demandable cases became just bench trials. And so I had like a 35 bench trials. (laughs) but. They weren't jury demandable anymore, so there were no juries. So oh, that's no. how you got such a great number. Um, yeah, well, well, and in New York, what was interesting too, and again, you know, a very different experience at the federal level, but at the state level, when you picked a jury in New York, you really picked the jury. I mean, you were doing the voir dire, you were asking the questions, and and your ability to to think on your feet and you know have that dialogue and that type of connection with the jury um was just invaluable right in terms of a lesson in, in being a trial lawyer because you really learned how to talk to the jury no that's so true and i guess you know that's a great place for us to start because you've had some really impressive roles with department of justice as you said you were assistant chief for, of the healthcare fraud unit um you were also a lead prosecutor for the medicare fraud strike force in la you were also chief of staff and deputy director at EOUSA. I mean, kudos to you for having such a long and really prestigious government career. But tell us how it all began. How did you decide to become a state prosecutor and eventually become a federal prosecutor? Well, you're going to laugh. I, I started out wanting to be a corporate lawyer. And, and I took all the uh, corporate law classes in law school and tax law and all these different things, thinking I was going to be a deal lawyer. And then uh, came out of law school, was working at a firm doing corporate work. And I fell asleep at my desk every day at about two o'clock after lunch. And, you know, where like the pen would drop out of your hand and hit the desk and wake you up. And um, I just realized it just didn't interest me uh, the way I'd hoped. And I had interned at the local district attorney's office where I was from in Rochester. And they just happened to have a random opening, which they didn't have very often back then. And they, I knew some folks there, they reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested? And I interviewed and got the job. And I found for me personally, and certainly at that stage of my career, it just was something that really resonated with me. Um, you know, I enjoyed being at that point, being a prosecutor and I enjoyed doing the work and just the pace of it and being on your feet a lot and trying cases. And, and just, it kind of reminded me in some ways, right, of, of, of sports in some ways, because you're competing and there's rules and you're trying to uh, do the best job you can. And and um, I just really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I think especially for young lawyers, there's nothing more exciting um, than just being in that courtroom. Well, exciting and nerve wracking and <laughs> anxiety ridden, all of those things. <laughs> um, and I think it's almost easier to do it when you're, you know, really young because you just don't know what to be afraid of, right? As we get older, <laughs> we get more cautious, it seems. But Talk to me about how you developed an expertise in healthcare law, because obviously you had done state prosecution, you had done, you know, the healthcare fraud at DOJ, but what made you decide that, okay, healthcare is where it's at for me? Yeah, I, I think it was sort of more, it 
was less me deciding and more decided for me in some ways. I, I had um, when I moved over from uh, being a state prosecutor to a federal prosecutor, I was a violent gang prosecutor. Uh, I did big drug trafficking organization cases or OSADF, it was called Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force cases. And um, again, you know, had a great experience, loved it and enjoyed it and enjoyed the work and the people I worked with. Uh, I ended up getting an opportunity to come down to Washington, D.C. on what was supposed to be a one year assignment and ended up being five years. And I got down to D.C. and ended up having some different opportunities. And one of uh, one of those opportunities actually was created by our fellow partner, Mike Battle at the firm. And Mike came down, had been the U.S. attorney in the Western District of New York, became the head of the executive office for U.S. attorneys, which oversees the operation of all 94 U.S. attorney offices across the country and actually across the world, because there's a couple in, in different places. Um, and he made me his chief of staff and deputy director, which which was a radical you know, uh, change in my career path and, and a good one and put me into a leadership position. And so I did that for a couple of years. And when it came to healthcare, what had happened is, uh, as I was trying to figure out what to do next, um, one of my good friends was head of the fraud section, called me and said, hey, we're gonna start this Medicare fraud strike force model where we're gonna go after healthcare fraud around the country. I need someone who can try cases, who can supervise people, teach young you know, prosecutors just starting out and, and help manage and grow this and build it. And it just seemed like a neat opportunity. So I, I jumped on it and found that I really just enjoyed healthcare generally. Um, I had a real interest in it. You know, you really have to understand it to do the work. You have to get into the weeds in it. Uh, it has its own language. You can't kind of fake your way through it. And again, it just resonated and stayed with me. And I've been doing it ever since. Well, I think that's amazing because I am still, you know, many would say halfway through with my career and I still, I love so many different parts of the law. It's hard for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I focused in on white collar because I love criminal work. I love white collar work. I love the chance to get in trial, but healthcare was a close second because I think the the issues that you deal, especially in healthcare fraud are just so common, right? To everyone's life. Like whether you're an attorney, a doctor, a blue collar worker, you've dealt with healthcare in some form. And so it's sort of very relatable, I think, to juries when there are issues with healthcare. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And, and it does. It impacts everybody, to your point, right? I mean, and anyone who's dealt with our healthcare system and, and the challenges that come with that and reimbursement and different services. And, and obviously, it's just a very complex system. And on top of that, it's incredibly highly regulated. Uh, when you have that much money um, flowing through a healthcare system, you know, when you're Medicare, Medicaid in particular, there's going to be a lot of oversight. There's going to be a lot of opportunity for fraud and waste and abuse. And and really what had happened was they, they wanted to take, the government at the time, DOJ, wanted to take folks like myself who had this very proactive prosecution type experience, right? You, you know, informants and wiretaps and search warrants and uh, flipping people and all that, that, that approach to cases and apply it to healthcare. And, you know, before that, I always kind of joke, I think healthcare fraud prosecutors were like, you know, the guy in office space with the red stapler in the basement, like no one cared about them. They were, they, they were just kind of ignored. And now healthcare fraud has become just a booming area of law. Um, it's become a really hot area for folks to work in terms as prosecutors. And then on the outside, there's just a lot of work and it's sophisticated work. So I think it's going to continue to be an 
area of law that's just constantly evolving and changing. And criminal and civil pieces go hand in hand. So it, it creates even more opportunity in terms of, you know, developing expertise and being able to help clients. Absolutely. How was it that you decided to take the skills that you formed and, and developed in the government um, and transition to private practice? Oh, gosh. Um, I think there were a bunch of factors. At that point, I was I had been about 10 years in. Um, I was running at that point the Los Angeles strike force and I was commuting out to L.A. every other week from D.C. and you know, had a baby at home and, and a wife. And I, I just kind of woke up one day and didn't feel the same excitement that I'd had. Um, it just was kind of ready and ready for a change. And I was very fortunate again, like I think a lot of my opportunities in life, it just sort of happened very randomly. Um, I didn't go out and do a big search. I had some friends uh, that were at a firm called Fulbright and Jaworski at the time. And, uh, you know, it, they reached out and we had some conversations and they said, gosh, we'd love to add someone with your skill set. And I literally just jumped at it. So I didn't do a big search and I just went and, and that was really my first, um, what I would say, kind of move into big law and, and learning about how that all worked and you know, having a global type practice and a global firm. And, um, you know, so it was a really good starting point for me. Yeah. And the value of just networking, right. And relying on the people in your, in your network to help you identify those next opportunities. I think that's one that resonates with all of us, no matter what stage of your career you're at. Um, but now I'm going to turn you over to Mina and she's going to be asking you some more questions specifically about your trial work. Terrific. All right, John. So um, as any good trial lawyer, and especially on this podcast, you know, we love a good trial story. So could you tell us about one of your favorite trials and why it was your favorite trial? Oh, gosh. Yeah. In fact, one comes to mind. There's a bunch that were sort of comical over the years, right, where you always have these crazy stories. But one that was uh, probably one of my favorites was I was a prosecutor at the time. I was a federal prosecutor, Rochester, New York at the time. And we prosecuted uh, what really was a violent gang. And that gang was going out and they were kidnapping, torturing and murdering other drug dealers. And, you know, if you think about it, right, if you take a, if you kidnap, torture a drug dealer, take their drugs and money, they're not typically going to call 911 afterwards. So um, that had been going on for a while. So I got involved in that case and tried it with another colleague of mine. And it was just a fascinating case. And it was one of those cases where every witness was incredibly fascinating. We had multiple witnesses who had been, you know, shot and left for dead and survived. We had witnesses who didn't show for trial. Um, and, and the leader of the gang, the lead target of it was, was a, someone named Supreme. And so I, the, the reason why I sort of, you know, look back at that case was just I worked so closely with the homicide detectives who became my good friends. And, and you two will get a kick out of this. So I'd be laying in bed at night, like, you know, clutching a bat <laughs> in, my, in my house, absolutely terrified, you know, listening to every noise with the trials ongoing, because I would get armed escorted into the courtroom every day. So I'd walk through a bunch of their friends and members of their group, and they would wink at me and blow kisses at me and all that good stuff. And then, you know, we'd do the trial and I'd go home at night, living alone. And I'll never forget... Um, uh, I would get a text, you know, also to be like two in the morning, I'd get a text and I pop open my phone and it would say, Hey, I'm under your bed Supreme. And it was the <laughs> homicide detectives messing with me. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. So, 
<laughs> Needless to say, I didn't sleep well throughout that trial. But um, <laughs> you know, but that, that's the kind of stuff when you when you do this work. I mean, that's it's the relationships, right? You have with the people you're working with, your co-counsel, the agents. I mean, everyone that's sort of rowing the boat in the same direction, and and that's the stuff I remember the most fondly about it. Um, so it was it was just a fun case. Seven weeks in trial, like all every crazy thing that could happen happened. Uh, and it was just a ton of fun. That's great. That's wonderful. So also then on the flip side of the fun part is, can you tell our listeners what one of your most embarrassing moments in trial was and maybe how you recovered for our young listeners who are still learning? (laughs) Oh, young listeners still learning. I would say um, (laughs) I would say that just always assume something's going to go wrong when you try a case. Yeah, probably multiple times throughout it. Oh gosh, there's so many. I mean, I had I, actually the first jury trial I ever had was out in the town court. I believe it was Ogden, New York, like out you know many many miles from Rochester, and that's where they would send you when you first started as a state prosecutor, and um, and you would actually try cases at night, right? So you'd have night court, you'd pick a jury at like six at night, and it would go till two three in the morning. Um, which I'm not even sure they're even allowed to do anymore in New York, because you can imagine, right? Like you have this exhausted jury that just wants to get home. And, um, and I'll never forget that in my very first jury trial, uh, one of the jurors just got fed up and like stood up and was like, I'm leaving. You can arrest me if you want. I don't care. I need to get home to my, to my daughter. And she just got up and walked out of the courtroom. Um, and I remember kind of looking around at the judge and I was like, "Uh oh, am I in trouble? Like, did I, did I, did something happen? <laughs> How am I going to explain this tomorrow? Um, but that kind of stuff would happen all the time to you. But, but there were lots of moments like, you know, witnesses going sideways on you and um, people not showing people just saying, you know, something you didn't expect on the stand, which happens all the time. And I think you've just got to kind of learn to like, you know, as a young as a young attorney in particular, you've got to learn to just sort of look around, especially with a jury there and just be like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. No big deal. Just let's just move on to the next thing. Right. You just can't change your game face. Just kind of roll with it. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. OK. So in that same vein, then of kind of just rolling with it and keep going, have you ever had to appear before a judge who's been like unduly harsh with you or opposing counsel? Like maybe when you were a prosecutor, like dealing with the defense counsel who was unduly vexatious or just really obnoxious in your eyes or being just, you know, crazy about something for a reason you couldn't really figure out. And without naming any names, can you tell us, you know, what you learned from that experience or how you dealt with it? Yeah, I've had many of those. I found that to be the most frustrating thing about being a trial lawyer over over time which was just uh, just how different um, you could get treated by, by judges and people in different situations. And, and um, you know, just sometimes just just sort of being like, why? Like, what's the point of that? But I've had a number of instances where, you know, I, I can remember one time a tr- a trying a case in city court in Rochester and in front of a very, very difficult judge. And I picked up a water bottle that I had at my table, like a Poland Springs water bottle, and I sipped from it. And this judge started to scream at me in front of the jury for for uh, for promoting Poland Springs water because I had a water bottle on my table and I was drinking from it. <laughs> I was like, I mean, you can imagine you're sort of looking at the judge like, what are you talking about? Like, it's not like I have an NIL deal. Um, yeah. No one's paying Poland Springs water here. 
I mean, just things like that, where you were just like, what is the point of that? Um, but yeah, that, I mean, I think that happened all the time and you just have to learn again to just try to develop a very thick skin. And, um, you know, I also had a lot of judges that were incredibly gracious and that were treated you with, with tremendous decency and respect in front of a jury. You know, then the flip side was there were many who did, right. Who sort of enjoyed the game of, of making you look bad. I mean, I had a, uh, I had a judge, uh, a federal judge many years ago in L.A. where he was very frustrated that one of the folks on my strike force team had added someone to it, did a superseding indictment about a week and a half before trial was supposed mm. to happen and basically said, I'm not going to acknowledge the new indictment. You're going to go to trial on the old indictment in a week. Wow. And I expect me, Mr. Kelly, to be here. And to fly out and explain to me why this happened and then be there for the trial and try the case with this other, you know, younger AUSA. Um, and then once we finish that trial, the judge has said that we're going to start the second one on the superseding indictment. Well, you know that like from an appellate, I mean, that creates all kinds of crazy appellate oh, yeah. issues. But he just was making a point and, and was sort of known for being a pretty difficult judge. And so we had, I had to fly out to LA, work around the clock, literally around the clock with a team of people to get the trial ready, show up in court with no sleep in days. And we all got there. He kind of looked at us and said, you know what? I've changed my mind. Um, we're going to, we're going to actually go forward on the superseding indictment in another four weeks. And it just was to show he was boss and just to torment me. So, <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> so, oh, and I'm, I'm sure the defense attorneys loved you in that case as well. So that was fun, I bet. Yeah, well, and, and but they they knew, like the defense attorneys, you could tell knew what was happening. Like they showed up with nothing. Like they just sort of sauntered into court. Like they knew it wasn't going to happen. They knew it was really the judge trying to teach us a lesson about mm -hmm. superseding late. So lesson was learned, uh, but it was a very painful one. So let me just ask you, do you feel like you've had any different experiences being a prosecutor and the way you've been treated to now being in private practice and being a defense attorney and how you've been treated? Um, I think it's all it's all dependent on really sort of the, the court and the, and the judge and where you're located for your trial. I mean, I, I, I've had some really good experiences, too, on this side as well. Um, and it, I think the biggest difference um, when you're the prosecutor, right, you sort of roll into court, you know, the clerks and, you know, the deputies and you. You know, there's a sort of familiarity to it. And for us, you know, we're, we're hired guns, right? We're getting we're going out into other areas that we're not typically from to try cases and to represent people. And it's a very different dynamic. Um, you know, everything from like, where's your table going to be in the courtroom? How many chairs are you going to have? Where, um, you know, uh, having to go through the long line and the security line sometimes just because they, you know, they'll treat you differently than the AUSAs at times. So, yeah. Um, all those little things you just notice, right? You just notice the difference where it sort of feels like everyone else is on the home team and you're on the visiting team. Yeah, definitely. So for our new lawyers who are listening and preparing for their first trial or maybe for their first hearing, what would be maybe a tip or some advice that you would give them? Well, we mentioned it before. It definitely um, just know something is going to go wrong. And, that, and that's where I think the preparation is so important. If you prepare and you prepare well, um, and you know the facts in and out, it, it really helps you deal with those unexpected situations. I think just because you you can adapt easier, you can you know shift gears easier. Um, and and you know the and, and the rulings aren't always going to go your way. I mean, you may have in your head a certain script that you're going to follow, 
or at least you might have a script literally written out that you're going to follow. And that's the other thing is, is that just never goes the way you think it's going to go. I mean, you have to be prepared to pivot and to sort of be able to be flexible in your questioning and the way the case is going, because you might have objections or have evidentiary rulings that you think you're dead right on. And the court may just disagree. And you've got to be able to think through, okay, well, I didn't get that evidence in this way. So I better find another way to do it and, and really be creative and, and thoughtful in your approach. And isn't that the fun of trial when everything goes the wrong way and then you're back to square zero and trying to figure out how to get everything back in? It is. It is. And it, and it happens all the time. And so I think for folks who are just starting out in their career, if you're a perfectionist, you're going to have a lot of heartache is what I would yeah. say. Well, John, that's the end of my questions, but now we're coming to Michelle and I's most favorite part of our segment, and I'm going to turn it back over to Michelle. Well, that's right, John, and you said the the magic words, you know, you you can't be a perfectionist, okay? You got to just roll with the punches, and so for this last part of our program, we have what is our cross-examination round, and you know the rules for cross-examination. You have to answer the question that is asked. You don't get to explain. You're just answering the question that is asked, okay? And if there's anything objectionable, John, I'm here for you as your attorney. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> we need your attorney and the judge as well. So, <laughs> so this so, will turn out very well for you, I promise. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. You ready, John? I'm ready. All right. So you're a graduate of the University at Buffalo SUNY School of Law, correct? Yes. And the Buffalo Bills are your favorite football team, correct? Correct. And they're currently 5-1, and one, right? Yes. And this is one of the best seasons they've had in a long time, right? It is. <laughs> the first time you met Mike Battle was when you were in AUSA and he was the U.S. attorney, correct? That's correct. And in fact, you were kind of rude to him when you first met him. Isn't that I was. <laughs> yes, that is correct. True story. And once you learned who he was, you actually had to run to his office and apologize for being rude to him. Correct? I did. I did. I was in the middle of, of drafting a search warrant and had all these agents in my office. And all of a sudden I looked up and there's this impeccably dressed man standing in my doorway. For those, for those of you who know Mike. And I looked up and I was like, yeah, can I help you? I was very, very dismissive. He goes, I'll just come back in a little bit. I was like, yeah, okay. And then the agent said to me, John, that's Mike Battle. And I was like, oh my God, I got to go. And I ran down the hall and begged for forgiveness. So that's oh, how that's I got Mike. Funny. I love that. Usually we don't let people explain their answers, but I wanted to hear the full story. So thank you. <laughs> now, during your time with the EOUSA, you visited the U.S. Attorney's Office in Omaha, Nebraska, correct? Correct. You traveled with Mike Battle on that trip, right? I did. And in fact, you two dined with the chief of police, right? <laughs> yes, we did. And That's you right. also, in fact, left the keys to your rental car in the trunk, correct? I did. Threw them right in there and shut the, shut the trunk. And the chief of police with whom you had dined, refused to call for assistance to help you open the trunk and get the keys. Isn't that true? That is true. <laughs> okay. Why did he not help you? Okay. It was one of the funniest moments. I mean, Mike and I looked at each other. We're like, hey, can you just call one of your folks to, to, to you know, get the thing to open the lock? He's like, I can't do that. We're not allowed to do that anymore. We're like, what? what? Like, 
He just he literally saw me throw the keys into the trunk. This whole story seems suspect. I just want to stay. <laughs> no, they do. I love it though. Well, John, congratulations. You have survived our podcast. Awesome. 